When we first come to Christ in faith, a lot more happens than we realize consciously at the time. So what happens when we first are saved? I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 to 12. Colossians 2, verse 9, for in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask again for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception, what I say will be heard as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent vehicle to pass on all that needs to be said today. Nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be very, very clear, very, very simple. Let this be a life-changing word. And a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The question I raise today is, Jesus God? And so in Colossians 2 verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What Paul is doing now is to make a contrast between the counterfeit teaching that was pervading or trying to get into the church at Colossae uh, as opposed to what he calls the doctrine according to Christ. So in doing so, he returns now to a theme previously introduced in Colossians and has to do with the deity of Jesus Christ. That's a word that means Jesus is God. What separates the Christian from all other religions is this, that we believe that Jesus was and is God. Uh, you cannot, uh, for example, uh, be a Jehovah's Witness and believe that Jesus is God. And I could go down the list of many heretical teachings. Uh, a friend of mine, Kenny Borthwick, said to me a few days ago when we were together in the Hebrides, the beginning of heresy is the itch for something new. That happens to people that get bored with the same old Christian teaching. It happens. It happened in ancient Israel when God fed them supernaturally with manna. Imagine having something supernatural, that which defies a natural explanation. And then they got tired of it and complained. 
And this happens when it comes to the Christian faith. We get tired of hearing the same old, same old teaching. But listen, whenever this is taught, there may be one person there who hasn't heard it. And it is so important that God will make several hundred listen to the same thing in order for one other person to hear the truth. You see, the reason Jesus hasn't come yet is because there is a generation of people that need to be saved. How are they going to be saved? There's only one way, and that is by hearing the same old gospel. But you see, heresy begins with the itch for something new. And that is what was happening to the church of Colossae. Uh, we call it the Colossian heresy. It was strange. It was a mixture of what the Judaizers taught about circumcision. Uh, Gnostics who taught that they had something new. They said that what you believe is very good, but we can make it better with something new. And I would warn you, be careful. When you hear something new and ask, is this truly scripture? Now, for a lot of Christians, truth will seem new because they haven't heard it before. But make sure it squares with Holy Scripture. Well, Paul has just warned that there is an enemy out there. He said in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Only time you find that word in the Bible, right there. An empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world that suggest the demonic, and not according to Christ. A counterfeit teaching. You see, Satan, according to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, can be transformed into an angel of light. And people think, oh, seems good to me. And it has a, 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 an appearance on the surface of being good. And uh, this is very, the very way Satan gets in with what seems to be good teaching at first, and then you find out that it takes you off the rails, and if you're not rescued, you'll never be the same again. Well, almost all false teaching has its common denominator, a denial that Jesus is God. Some years ago, a friend of mine phoned me and said, uh, at our church, they were seeing some strange things. And he said, do you have any sermons on 1 John 4, verses 1, 2, 3, 4? And it happens that I had four sermons on it because in the days of Westminster Chapel, we did one verse a week. That was just the way we did it then. Uh, I would love to do Colossians that way, but then that would keep me here three or four years, and I might not live that long. So <laughs> I'm hoping to do it all in one year. Uh, looks like we may not finish this year. God knows whether... I'll be able to come back, but I'm doing the best I can as we work through this very, very important book. It is so relevant for the church at the present time. Well, 1 John 4 says, how do you test the spirits, whether they be of God? And the answer is, any spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, that's a way of saying God becoming Man, if they don't agree with that, it's not of God. And so today we look at what, for some of you, may be ABC, 
But remember how important this is. So Paul now, uh, having referred to the faith, uh, proceeds to show uh, what has happened to these Christians that may, they may not be aware of. For example, they were circumcised. <laughs> well, that may have been strange teaching. Gentiles being circumcised, they could have said, you could have fooled me. I don't remember anything like that. Surely I would remember it. But here's the thing. <clears throat> As we saw in the previous verse, Paul refers to being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. That's the, the Greek is very clear. The faith, not faith, the faith. We saw last time uh, how it's important, this phrase that maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't, propositional revelation. I want you to remember these two words. Say it with me. Propositional revelation. Would you say it one more time? Propositional revelation. Now, let me tell you what that means. It's very important. God has revealed truth in propositions, statements that are true. And you must believe these. God is creator. That's a proposition. Jesus is God. That's a proposition. He is man. That's a proposition. He's the God-man. He died on a cross. We believe that. His blood forgives us all our sins. These are propositions. He was raised from the dead. It's a proposition. So, God decided before Jesus ever came that there would be a body of truth. Jude refers to it. Earnestly contend for the faith, once for all delivered. It's all there. We don't improve on it. It doesn't get better. Now, sometimes the Holy Spirit will show us things we hadn't seen. And in a sense, they seem new. But the truth is, it's all in Scripture. Uh, I said last time, and I think I should say it again, you see, Her Majesty the Queen is the supreme governor of the Church of England and the governor of the faith. That is her responsibility. And she swore an oath to that. Well, sadly, her son, the Prince of Wales, like likable, lovely, who couldn't help but love Prince Charles. I pray for Charles every day. Never met him, probably never will. I pray for him and Camilla. I pray for the queen every day. They need our prayers. But Prince Charles now has been saying he will defend faith, not the faith. Huge difference. If he just says faith, that means that takes in anybody. Whether you're Muslim, Buddhist, Jehovah's Witness, you would take in anything. Well, many years ago, right after Louise and I were married, a man came to our house in Fort Lauderdale, a man and uh, two men together. And as soon as they came up, I recognized the literature they were carrying. I said, well, look, let me make a, a deal with you. I'll ask you a question. If you answer it correctly, I'll invite you in. If you don't, I'll ask you to leave. 
said, okay, sure. My question is, is Jesus God? Uh, 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 well, uh, what I, what I want to say is, it says, uh, wait, wait, wait. The deal was, if you answer my question, you could stay. If not, I'll ask you to leave. Is Jesus God? Uh, well, no, but I thank you. Goodbye. Now, Louise uh, thought I was a bit hard on him until I pointed out to John, to John verse 10. You know what it says? If anyone doesn't bring this teaching, that Jesus is God, to your house, don't even let him in. And don't even bid him Godspeed. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be rude, but you're firm. There are things we believe. Well, now, we're talking about the uniqueness of the Christian faith. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in uh, one body, namely Jesus. By the way, why this phrase, whole fullness of deity? You would have thought that Paul wrote that uh, for our day. Now, I happened to have been to seminary and was taught by a person who was once an evangelical and gave it up and was enamored by the teaching of the German theologian Karl Barth. So he said, these are his very words, and by the way, this man is the one who recommended me for Oxford, and it was nice to me, but you need to know what he said. He went from evangelical theology to Karl Barth. Now, why would he do that? It happens that there are those who get tired of just saying the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so forth, and just the same old propositions. And Karl Barth became famous, and he was immensely learned, uh, there is no doubt he's probably the greatest theologian uh, for hundreds of years because of, of his knowledge and ingenuity. There's no question. But people were attracted to him because he did believe in the virgin birth. And because he believed in the virgin birth, he said, oh, it can't be all bad. Uh, the truth is, once people went into Bartian-type thinking, they never remained Bartian. Because Karl Barth was also a universalist. He believed that Jesus died for all, therefore everybody must be saved. Didn't require that you believe that Jesus believed for everybody. I had uh, a meal once with the number one Bartian of Great Britain. If there were theologians here, I mentioned his name, you'd agree. I said to him, do I understand you, as we sat in this restaurant, but those people sitting in that booth over there, uh, you don't need to win them to Jesus. They're already saved. He said, that's right. I said, well, why go to them? Well, he says the good news is to tell them they've been saved. The thing is, if you don't tell them, they're still saved. And the thing is, that kind of teaching kills evangelism. By the way, there are no Bartian missionaries there are no Bardian soul winners. And no one ever stays a Bardian. They, they think they will, and they'll keep teaching it 
But in the meantime, something else happens. They become open to very strange teachings. So my professor said, I went from evangelical thinking to Bart. From Bart to Paul Tillich. Now, Paul Tillich was a very popular philosopher, theologian in the 20th century. And he defined God as the ground of all being. Can you imagine if Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the ground of all being. I think Jesus would say, huh? <laughs> What's that? But you don't even know what ground of all being, but you have to get into Tillich and you, and it turns out that he's a panentheist, that God is in all nature. And not only that, here's why evangelicals flocked to him. He said, Jesus is the Christ. And you think, oh, good. But then he goes on to say he wouldn't rule out that there would be another person come along who could also be the Christ. This is why this book is so relevant. Listen, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells in him. Now look, that means he's not 50% God, and then there'll be another 50% for someone else down the road. He's not 90% God and another 10% down the road. No, Jesus was 100% God. All of God there is, once for all, entered the womb of the Virgin Mary. There can never be another Christ because this was it. This is his point. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so, Jesus is the one and only Son of God. God himself came to earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, a physical person, a human being, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He was and is God. So that when the angel came to Mary in Jesus of Nazareth, that was the moment, it was it. There would never be another. When the creator of heaven chose to dwell in a body. I wonder if you ever noticed a verse, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. This verse grips me. I want it to grip you. It says, you have prepared for me a body. You know what this is? This is the eternal Logos speaking in eternity before the Word was made flesh. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, that's Logos. The Word was with God, the Word was God. But before the Word became flesh, in heaven, at some point in eternity, the Logos said, you have prepared for me a body, and he already then had come to the position that God would become a man. And so the Logos in heaven with God made a decision to become a human body, and he would have that body forever and ever and ever. He would never lose the existence of being the body. 
Jesus. That was a commitment. You've prepared for me a body. And once the Logos came from heaven and entered into the womb, the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, all of God entered Mary right then. You know this hymn. Let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span incomprehensively made man. It's Charles Wesley. But here is the Charles Wesley of the 20th and 21st century. See if you can sing this with me. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty, bow down and worship, for this is our God. Everybody, this is our God. Don't ever be ashamed of this. Jesus Christ was not God's creation. He is the creator. Paul has already said this. In him all the fullness of God dwells. He was before all things, and by him all things were made. He did not become God. He was and is God. This means, listen, the person who was born of Mary was and is God. It means the person who died on the cross was and is God. The person who was raised from the dead was and is God. Say it with me. The person who ascended to heaven was and is God. The person who is seated at the right hand of the Father was and is God. Now, Yet he is a man. This is the amazing thing. He is a man. In fact, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, the man. In my baptism of the Spirit that I had years ago, I've told this here and you recall it, many of you, what I don't always remember to say, but it was so real. I was amazed. I was amazed. Not only how real Jesus is, but that he really is a man. He's a man. It just gripped me, no end, that he is a man. And a uh, number of years ago, when I was still at Westminster Chapel, uh, we would take our holidays in Florida, but I would sometimes go over into the Bahamas and fish. And uh, I'd agreed to be there on a Sunday night and uh, preach for the pastor 
who was known as Bonefish Sam. He was uh, the great bonefish guide, a legend. He made the cover of Life magazine. He, he was uh, on many TV shows, and, but he was also pastor of a church. And so on that Sunday night, never will forget it, we were all on our knees praying. And I was the only non-Bahamian there. There were 19 Bahamians, plus me. And I thought, Lord, what do you want me to preach on? And would you believe, for the first time, that experience of October 31st, 1955 came on me, and Jesus was real, oh, so real. It was almost as though I could touch him. And the Lord seemed to say, preach on, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I began to show as I preached that he looks the same. In what sense is he the same? He looks the same. He still has the prints of the nails in his hands throughout eternity. He will be the only one in heaven with a scar on his body. I never had such power. I never will forget after that service was over, I thought, Lord, why don't you give me this anointing at Westminster Chapel? Or it just happened that that morning I'd been at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale wearing D. James Kennedy's robe, and I preached a good sermon, I guess. But I thought, you know, 2,000 people, movers and shakers, television cameras, why don't you give me this then for the world? And instead, 19 Bahamians, no movers and shakers as far as I could tell. They swept floors, worked in restaurants, cleaned toilets. And I've been back since and preached since, but they still remember that night. I'll never forget it. Why? It's just one of God's ways. <laughs> he likes to show up to the most insignificant person or remote spot. Do you know where I was one week ago today? I was in Stornoway on the Isle of Lewis in the Hebrides. We were there because it's the 70th anniversary of the great Hebrides revival, greatest move of the Spirit since the Welsh revival. And uh, I was honored to be there, to be invited to speak uh, with uh, my friend, uh, Kitty Borthwick. And uh, I learned a lot while I was there. I'd heard some before. I'd went and read some books. But uh, the interesting thing I learned, and I hadn't picked up on this, that it bypassed most of the Hebrides, Stornoway, for example, population seven or 8,000 people, didn't even go near it. Why, the pastors in Stornoway rejected the revival. They didn't want it. It bypassed them. I bet you've never heard of the town Barvas, B-A-R-V-A-S. Ever heard of Barvas? That's where God came little place. I went to the church. It's out in the middle of the country. 
their houses around farms. It was the epicenter of the Hebrides revival. Fear of God came on the island. And then they invited an evangelist by the name of Duncan Campbell, who he did nothing but expository preaching. This is what is needed, expository, just what I'm doing. Unfold the Bible. People say, well, that's boring. That's what they did. God came. Power. This needs to be constant because God will honor his word. And people will be converted in homes, walking down a road. A mother and her 21-year-old son were just walking down a road when suddenly presence of God came on her son and he broke down and sobbed. And she said, this is a famous little story that came out of the Hebrides revival. She said, oh, Willie, you've come home at last. I spent last Monday morning with Willie, the Reverend William McLeod, retired Church of Scotland minister, converted in the Isle of Hebrides. But you would have thought, if God's going to visit Britain, surely he would come to London. If he's going to visit Scotland, Glasgow, or Edinburgh. No. Barvis. See, I've taught you, you can, in fact, you look up Barbus, you probably won't find it. I tried to find it on Google. It, it does mention it. It's about 12 miles from Stornoway. And over three years, people would walk to church, and they never uh, got bunions or blisters on their feet. They would stay in church till 2 o'clock in the morning or go to homes. And one home as they were praying, the place was shaken. They thought it was an earthquake, except that nobody else in the area felt it. Like in Acts 4.31, the place was shaken. Dishes fell off the table as they were praying. Power of God. You think, why there? You see, that's just the way God is. And I want you to appreciate something. Do you realize God did not have to save you? The presence of God comes and you say, yes, you are chosen. He, bashes, he bypasses some, but he saved you. That ought to make you a very thankful person. Well, you know, you've heard me say this in the past. I haven't said it lately. It's my own view that the next thing to happen on God's calendar is not the second coming but the awakening of the church before. And according to the parable of the ten virgins, it comes at midnight, but that doesn't mean 12 o'clock. It's three Greek words. They just translate it midnight. It means middle of night. Metaphorically speaking, let me tell you when it's going to happen. Metaphorically speaking, it will come to people who aren't expecting anything. But in a deep sleep, they don't want to be bothered. And that's where the church is today. Sleep. They're sleeping. You can't tell them they're asleep. They say, oh, I'm wide awake. Oh, you don't know you were asleep until you wake up. You're like, oh, I was asleep. You do things in your sleep you wouldn't do if you were awake. That's what the church is doing, tolerating things. Like 
Gay marriage, 10 years ago, it would have been thought terrible. Oh, we're just used to it now. And we say to somebody, do you realize it's a bad situation? They go, yeah, let me sleep on. We don't want to know. But I'll tell you this, it's ripe for this awakening. Imagine when the fear of God returns and you won't need to ask, is this it? You will know. That's what we pray for. Well, what is more? Says Paul, we are complete in him. It's in Christ plus nothing. In him you're justified, you are sanctified. In God's sight you are declared righteous. You may not feel righteous. You think, I feel like I'm a sinner. But God says you're righteous. You may not look righteous. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, I'm righteous. Okay, but wait a minute. It's not your righteousness. It's his. You can say to your husband or your wife, I'm righteous. They'll say, you don't look righteous to me. But it's a forensic righteousness. God says you are. See, my point is, things that happened to you when you were converted, you weren't aware of all those things. And he now brings up, of all things, the uniqueness of circumcision. Now, circumcision was essential to a Jew's identity. You see, many Jews were reluctant to let Gentiles in. Jews had become Christians. They didn't want Gentiles in because they were regarded as outsiders. Uh, But some said, we'll let them in as long as they are circumcised first. Well, the Apostle Paul had terrible persecution from Jews over his claim. People don't need to be circumcised if God has saved them. And his argument, you read it in Romans 4. Abraham was justified by faith. He wasn't circumcised. He was later circumcised. That shows that God accepted him, and so must we. And Paul won the argument, and it was a big deal in Acts chapter 15, where they would let Gentiles in who hadn't been circumcised. And so Paul's now writing to the Colossians. He says, you were circumcised. You know, these... These men could say, circumcision, I understand that's pretty painful. And after three days, it really hurts. They would say, if I was circumcised, I think I'd remember it. Well, Paul says you were, but look how he puts it. You were filled with him. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It's what God did. You may not have felt it, but God says you're circumcised because you now, it's your whole person. The old self has died. The new man is alive. God did that. You may not feel it, but believe his word. That's what he says is true. And so conversion to Christ, most wonderful supernatural event. And as we grow in Christ, we find more and more what happened to us. And then he adds this. I don't want to make a big deal of this, but he does say it. He says, you were buried with him in baptism. The word baptism means dipping in water. The Greek word, baptizo, not a religious word, 
It's not a religious word. It just means dip in water. And so in the earliest church, baptism was by immersion. Even John Calvin admits in the earliest church it was baptism by immersion. Well, it became a convenience to sprinkle. But Greek Orthodox, that even baptize babies. They immerse the baby. They know they're Greek. Well, the point is, when you were baptized, this shows that you were circumcised by the Holy Spirit. Well, it's time to close. I just want to say this. To be able to affirm that Jesus is God is what you do because you are enabled to do it by the Holy Spirit. We had a man at Westminster Chapel, godly man, been saved for years, and knew his Bible, and oh, he, he, he was a lovely man. But then he remembered that week, it was as if the Satan had reminded him that before he was saved, he was in a pub and said, damn you, Holy Ghost. And he remembered it that week, and he thought, oh, I blaspheme the Spirit. I can never be saved. Because Jesus said, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you cannot be converted in this world or in the world to come. He said, Dr. Kendall, I can't be saved because I said that. I said, wait a minute. Question. Do you believe that Jesus is God? He said, oh, yes. I said, worry no more. Worry no more. The only person that can say that from your heart, Jesus said, or rather Paul said, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, no man can say that Jesus is Lord. That means Jesus is God, but by the Holy Spirit. And so there may be someone here today, you worry because of some sin in your past. Oh, what I did means I can't be saved. Listen, if you can say from your heart, Jesus is God. You couldn't do that, but by the Spirit. Worry no more. You are saved. But I do need to ask this question before I finish. I've got to do it. I was with a, a man from Iran, a taxi driver, two days ago, Muslim. And I talked to him about Jesus, and God opened his heart, and he prayed to receive the Lord. I had a Persian tract was able to give it to him. I have to ask you what I asked him. Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Do you? And if you were to stand before God, you will. And he were to ask you, he might. Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Think about it for a moment. What would you say? If it doesn't come into your heart to say, because Jesus died for me. If it doesn't come into your heart to say, because of the blood of Jesus. I would not want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. But if you are willing to pray this prayer, this Iranian prayed it. You don't need to say it out loud. Don't need to close your eyes. Right now, pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I know I am a sinner and I'm sorry for my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross. 
Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart as best as I know how I give you my life.